Hey there, I'm Tal Zlotnitsky from Ignite IT Consulting. You know me from the Braving Business Podcast, but when I'm not behind the mic, I'm helping tech startups and established companies ignite their full potential. I also help entrepreneurs and businesses in distress reset for success. With over three decades of entrepreneurial success, I bring hands-on experience to drive growth, navigate turnarounds, raise capital, and lead through innovation. Whether it's executive coaching or strategic transformation, I'm here to turn your business challenges into success stories. Visit IgniteITConsulting.com and let's spark that change together. That's IgniteITConsulting.com. Your journey to business brilliance starts now. This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Well, hello there. Hi there. How's it going? It's going fantastic. How are you, my fine feathered friend? I am wonderful. I'm actually looking at the background on uh, Teresa's uh, video, and I can see that you have some things in common. I, uh, besides, you're you're both you know obviously pageant beauty pageant winners and uh, and former Bowflex uh, um, you know. Models, yes, of course. Models, both of you, of course. But there's something else actually that says jumping out at me. The uh, can you see it? Do you yeah, see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Japan and Hawaii, love it. Yeah, love it. that's right. That's right. That's right. Are, are you Beautiful are you places. there now? Are you there now? I wish. No, I'm in Maryland <laughs> dealing with three inches of snow, but it's okay because, you know, back in the day when I lived in Japan, it was absolutely beautiful. And I always took a trip or two to Hawaii and got to lay out on some beaches out there and, and love the whole spirit, the aloha spirit. So right. I miss it. You're lucky you grew up there. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trust me. I live in Chicago. I miss it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You By went way, polar I, opposites, yes, tropical island to literally a popsicle yes, in, the, in the wintertime. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I, I meant to ask you, you know, because a famous person went from Hawaii to Chicago. That's President Obama. Mm -hmm. um, did you and President Obama, like, you know, do this together, like hand in hand? Did, did you we, hold hands? Did we, and... did we chill? Um, no, we never chill. He, he would be a lot of fun to chill out with. Uh, good yeah. guy. He's a little older than I am. Not by much, but a little bit. And he went to Punahou. I went to Kaiser. Yeah different uh -huh. different world different world but, huh. but all right know, well if cool. it makes i mean i've never been to japan i'm looking forward to going uh one day i've been to hawaii multiple times but japan one of these places that i am heck hell bent i'm gonna say hell bent uh to go visit before too long so i'm looking forward yeah. to it maybe, maybe therese can give me should. some recommendations absolutely to go, and i things still to see I still speak the language a little bit too, You're so kidding. I may be able to you kind of give you the some language. words. Yes, Scotia. Yeah, oh. when I lived there, I, I was pretty fluent during the time when I lived there, and I I pick up languages really easily actually, and so it was. It's a lot easier when you live there and you're submersed in it like everywhere you go you're seeing katakana hiragana all i purposely lived off base and had an apartment with only japanese neighbors that was intentional so that way i could talk to them but what backfired was i would go and try to talk to them they'd be like oh speak to me in english and i'm like no i don't want to speak to you in english i want to speak to you in japanese yep. and so very, what ended up very common was yeah, we did yeah, a trade-off. That's what happens. Yeah, yep. exactly. You have to do a trade-off. Exactly. Yep. I, I oftentimes, when, whenever I visit Israel, family there wanted to speak to me in English to practice their English. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I, I need to practice my Hebrew. Exactly. And, Therese, we'll, yeah. we'll uh, quiz Tao real quick because I took Japanese. Well, of course, I took Japanese when I was in high school, but also, uh, you know, just living there, you, you learn a lot. So, mm -hmm. Tao, what do you think makuro narudo means? I, I, you know what? I, I would not even want to venture. Guess. Go ahead and tell me. McDonald's. Because my guess will, will most likely be embarrassing. Go ahead. McDonald's. 
McDonald's. How do you say that again? Makuro Narado. Huh. Interesting. Yep. I kind of yeah. Makura Ikurodeska. Where's the McDonald's? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Uh, all right. Well, how about we uh, tell people uh, who you know, we're about dealing with today? PJ. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So we have, as everyone already, has already been introduced to her, kind of, is the wonderful Miss Therese, or sorry, Therese Garnier. God, I already messed up her name. Therese Garnier, <laughs> um, who we're thrilled to have. She is truly a remarkable individual. She's a journalist, an advocate, a philanthropist, and an entrepreneur whose life story is a testament to both resilience as well as versatility. Raised as a military child, Therese served in the U.S. Air Force as an AFN reporter, anchor, and radio show host. Following her service, she earned her master's in broadcast and digital journalism from very warm Syracuse University and then made her mark as a journalist. The colors are warm. They, they are They're, orange and blue um, and made her mark as a journalist covering major events for Fox News Channel and becoming Newsy's first Pentagon correspondent. Beyond journalism, Therese is a champion of fitness, including a time as a Bowflex model, a Bowflex fitness model, um, which ironically enough, I also am a fitness model. I'm always on the before <laughs> pictures. I'm, I'm the before model. The before um, model. I love that. As as well as advocacy and artistry, uh, Therese has also ventured into pageantry, earning the title of Miss International World last year, and using this platform to mentor as well as inspire others. Recently, she published a very important memoir, No Longer Silent, which is a deeply personal book. Therese recounts her healing process from childhood trauma and from sexual assault during her military service. She advocates for awareness and understanding around trauma as well as assault, and we'll, we'll definitely dive into this book today. As an entrepreneur, she's a master craftsman, owner of Live Edge Artistry, making beautiful edge wood tables, which I'm sure we're gonna see. To those of you who have no idea what a Live Edge, nice. what live edge furniture is, it refers to a style of furniture where the craft person incorporates the natural edge of wood into the design of the piece. It's beautiful stuff. It takes a lot of artistry to do. And, uh, you know, it's just one of her many, many talents. Therese, it is an honor to have you with us here on the Braving Business Podcast. Well, it's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share my story. And I, I do have a lot of things that I do. So <laughs> let's get it going. Because <laughs> yeah, we might be here a while. Yeah. I'm just kidding. We, we, I'm not yeah, bragging. Yeah, we got but. it all in. <laughs> Um, Teresa, it's, it's really an honor to have you here. And, uh, you, you have had a, a super interesting life, a diverse life. You've also tried on different hats, different careers, which, uh, is increasingly something that people do. Um, I'd love for you to tell your story to the audience and, uh, maybe share what drove you to explore so many different paths. You went from military service, journalism, uh, competing in a pageant, authoring a book, starting a business, you're doing all these things. What's what's been the path that you took to here and what is it about this path that made you so curious about trying so many different things? Well, what's so interesting is they all tie into each other. It's just the way that you have to look at it. And so initially as a kid, I always wanted to be an actress. And it's actually funny. My dad said a couple of times he walked in the house when I was like seven or eight and he heard me talking to myself in the bathroom for hours. And he thought it was the weirdest thing ever. And so one day he opened the door and I was practicing accents in the mirror. So, you know, every now and then I'll break out in a British accent or, you know, my country accent will come out and it comes out really bad, you know? And so he thought I was very strange and I, I can understand why people would think that, um, but I wanted to be an actress. And so growing up, I was always into art. Um, I competed in art competitions every year. And those two kind of tie into each other. Um, once I was old enough to start deciding what I wanted to do career wise, I said, I want to be an artist. And I went to art school. And then after a year of that, I said, yep, nope, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be, you know, most artists don't become famous until after they're dead. And uh, I didn't want to be a starving artist. And so at that point, I said, well, you know what, maybe I should just go back to school, figure out kind of what I want to do now. Um, I'll go into communications. And so I started pursuing my degree initially for my bachelor's in communications. And in the midst of that, I said, um, I'm going to move to Japan. So <laughs> I moved to Japan and I start, I'm going to school there in Japan. And then I started interning at a local TV station. 
And the reason why I did is because I said, you know what? I'm still interested in that TV side, not the acting per se, but at least with this, I'll be able to give people information um, and also still kind of be on TV. So <laughs> I interned at uh, the local station, Iwakuni um, Television there. And um, I did that for, uh, I want to say- and How maybe... old were you at the time? At that time, that was in 2009. So I had to have been 20. I think I was 20. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to school and working at the local marketing station on Iwakuni. So that's the Marine Corps base there. Uh, I was a photographer. So I did a lot of photography around the base while also interning at their local TV station. And so I got to learn radio. Um, I got to learn how to edit a news story. And actually my first, I guess, helping uh, the actual radio show host, I was kind of, I don't want to say co-anchoring, but kind of helping them set up for the show. And that first opportunity I had, I actually helped them interview Tommy Davidson, comedian Tommy Davidson. I still have his um, signature and the, the, um, his photo with a signature on it. I was just looking at it yesterday, actually. And so that was really cool, you know, kind of preparing the show host for that interview. And then afterwards, you know, he kind of cracked some jokes. He was like, oh, you know, um, I don't want to be seen with you because you probably got some crazy Marine daddy that's out hiding in the bushes with a sniper rifle, you know, ready to shoot me at any moment's notice, you know, and he actually incorporated that in his comedy skit. So that was really entertaining to be on that base and have my dad seeing his show, a huge uh, we, fan. Is Tommy Davidson related to Pete Davidson or is that just an altogether different comic? Totally. I don't comic. think okay. I don't. Yeah, I Got don't it. think there is any. If it is, it's like way down the line. A third cousin twice removed. Got it. No yeah, problem. kind of thing. <laughs> if it is. Um, and so that was just really cool. My dad and I grew up watching In Living Color and all of the other movies and things that he had been in. And so just to introduce my dad and him kind of making fun of my dad, that was pretty great. So while I was there, I said, you know, I was researching and I saw that the Air Force had a program for broadcast journalists. And so I said, well, let me look into that. And so I did some research. I went and talked to a recruiter, went through the whole process and ended up getting uh, the position, so to speak. I got sent to basic training and then they sent me right back to Japan, which is so amazing. So I spent another three and a half or so years in Japan. And during that time, I was a radio show host uh, of Eagle 810. I had, I was DJ Fructis. And I had a show from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, I had over 75,000 listeners um, across the Kanto Plain or throughout all of Tokyo. Um, and so I did that in the mornings. And then in the afternoons later on, it started off where I was just doing radio. But then my shows became so popular that I started asking them if I could anchor the TV portion of our um, office as well. And wow. so in the mornings, I would do radio. And in the evenings, I would anchor and so fell in love with it. And, you know, I got to experience a lot of things in Japan. I was a huge volunteer, as you can see, my little shadow box right here for Japan. Yeah. Um, I also created a video that went viral asking Oprah to be my mentor. And it went viral and uh, CNN saw it. And so while I was in the States doing pre-deployment training, they actually flew me out to Atlanta. I got to tour the bureau. And who would have ever thought that a decade later, I would be a news correspondent, that's... a national news correspondent. And for someone my age, that's not normal. And that's it's very rare. Yeah. So had I not posted that video, I may not have become the first <laughs> Pentagon correspondent or national correspondent. So um, but the, the moral of that story is Oprah never saw that video. <laughs> she never saw uh, well, it. You... The, you know? the moral of that story, if if we think about uh, the context of what we've heard on this podcast, is how often that first big breakthrough is about putting something out there, being courageous, not knowing the outcome, but being prepared to put yourself out there, potentially being embarrassed because you know what? No, it's possible no one would have watched the video, or you would have been the only. You posted it to your for yourself, uh, but you posted it. Other people saw it, and and there you are now. There you and are the, now. And the funniest story about that, people were like. Don't post that video. That's so dumb. You're not going anywhere. No one's going to see it. You're just going to embarrass yourself. Like I had so many people who were like totally against it. And I've always lived with the mindset that you miss every shot you don't take. Yep. 
I'm going to try it. If it works great. And if it don't, okay, learning lesson next, <laughs> you know, so I'm glad I did as well. You yeah. Know? There's, there's a lot to be said about that. Cause a lot of times, you know, one of my, one of the things that I, I tell my kids all the time is you don't get what you don't ask for. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you don't put yourself out there, um, you're just not gonna, you're not gonna experience what you want. Naysayers are a dime a dozen. Everyone, everyone can mm -hmm. be a naysayer, right? But those that are actually generating a life and, and getting out there and doing things, well, I mean, you just got to go do it. I, th I think it's very commendable that you've, you've done all that. I also think it's amazing that you, you go to a recruiter, you're like, Hey, I want to do broadcast journalism. And then they bring you into the military and they give you a job in broadcast journalism. That is from everything I've heard. Uh, it's always like, Oh yeah, you can fly shit. You can fly whatever you want. And then you come in and now you're, you know, you're filling up air tires on a, on a plane, like instead of flying them. So good for you. Right. right? Obviously your, your, your talent shown through, which is, hmm. uh, which is really, really cool. So good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, but, but it's you, been... what, what's interesting that we look at you and this is the part of the story that I, Important for our audience to hear, it's easy to look at you and, and what you've accomplished and assume you've you've kind of had it easy, right? You talked about, hey, you, you you traveled, you went to Japan as a 20-year-old. A lot of people that would have that would feels impossible to do. Yeah. You took some risks, but the reality is it wasn't even it wasn't a straight shot, right? You had many challenges. Uh, and we're gonna get into some of that when we talk about your book, both what happened to you as a child, what happened to you in the military. Uh, but before we get th into that. The journey you took, I, I was absolutely amazed to find out that while you were pursuing your career in journalism, you actually had a period of time where you were homeless, uh, which I just was. blew my mind. Uh, would love to hear about that. Um, how, how did that happen? I mean, you know, what can you tell us about that part? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's pretty interesting because for a long time, I didn't want to tell people about it because when you say homelessness, the first thing people think is, well, what did you do wrong? She must be a drug dealer. She must have been on drugs. She must have, you know, usually a lot of situations where people end up in that situation is because of something they did. However, in this circumstance, it was not anything that I did, actually. Um, I had been at the time I was working in Florida. I was in local news and I had accepted a job here in D.C. with Newsy. Now, during that time, I had packed up all my stuff. And in order to ship it up here, it was like six or $7,000 to ship all my stuff up. So all my savings went to ship, um, shipping my stuff up here. And once I started making plans, I reached out to a few friends who I was in the military with. And I said, hey, I'm moving up to the area. Would it be possible to come stay with you for a month or two? I hope to purchase a home. So I just need a place to stay for a couple months until I can purchase this home. And at the time I had two people get back to me. I had um, one girl that I was stationed with. She was renting out a bunch of rooms. So she said, you can come stay with me. But then I also talked to my other friend as the backup. And she was like, yeah, I, I have a room that's available. And then I have a friend that also has a room avail that's available if you need it. So I'm like, great. I have three options. Perfect. You know, I'm trying to be prepared because that's my military mentality. Always be prepared. So I'm driving up to D.C., to move in with the girl I was stationed with a while ago. And I get to her home and uh, let's just say the conditions were not conditions where I could live there. I, I don't want to embarrass her or anything, but it was not, it was a health hazard, so to speak. And so after driving 23 hours straight from West Palm Beach to uh, DC, I slept in my car because I had nowhere else to go. Um, I had a U-Haul attached to my car and now I'm like, I don't know where I can stay. So let me reach out to those two other friends. Unfortunately, the two other friends just had two people move into those rooms and they got to make money. So I get that. So I'm like, oh, crap, I don't know anyone here. Like most of the people I know are gone. They're not here anymore. And so I basically lived in my car for a few weeks. And during this time, I'm reporting to work. I'm doing my job. And then they had like a gym there. So I would go to the gym sometimes to wash up or um, there was a park that I would go to and there was like a hotel there and I would go and say I wanted to use the bathroom and then I would go and wash up in the bathroom and then go back and stay in my car. Uh, I did that for a couple of weeks and a friend of mine found out that that was going on because, again, I'm embarrassed. I'm a national correspondent living out of my car. Like, who wants to go around saying that? Not to mention I was in the military and I didn't want to be known as a homeless veteran. And so my friend found out and he at that time was living in a I think it was like 360 square foot studio apartment. And also he hates dogs. But he said, I cannot have you living on the street. That unacceptable. No, I don't care if you have a dog. 
we'll make it work. And so bless his heart. He helped me, he helped me move in with him. And so I slept on the couch and his bed was like two inches away from the couch. Cause it's a studio apartment, you know, and my dog's there. And, and we did that for about a month. So at that point I was couch surfing. Uh, once that ended, thank God I was able to finally move into the home that I was trying to purchase. And then a, I think it was maybe a few weeks later, up to a month later, he moved in with me and he lived on the first floor. He had his own space and everything so he could save up to get his own house. So he lived with me for about six months, saved, paid off a ton of debt, saved up a lot of money and then bought his own home. And so that goes to show you showing kindness like that, how it just came back full circle. He didn't have to let me come stay with him. And I stayed with him for a month, but thank God he showed me that kindness and I was able to turn it back around and show him the same kindness. And that's why I'm so big on paying it forward. When people help me, I pay it forward. And I don't ever ask for anything in return because God's going to bless me at the end of the day. But I want to make sure that I can be a blessing to others because I've had so many people help me and not ask for anything in return. So that is like the epitome of hustle, right? And and <laughs> and struggle, right? Like you are you're living out of your car with a U-Haul. Like, did, did you keep that U-Haul trailer for all those weeks? I did, I did, because it had my stuff in it. Yeah, I had to have been expensive. I couldn't unhitch yeah. it. I could. Well, it right, was one right. of those small ones. Yeah. It was like a five by eight, so it was only like. I don't know, like 30 bucks a week or something like that. Um, But it was a pain having to drive everywhere and then being concerned someone might break into it and steal my stuff out, you know? So yeah, it was a lot. But also showing up to work with that attached and (laughs) you are a, right? Because now you got to take up two two parking spots and you're you're a national reporter (laughs) and a Pentagon correspondent. Like- at the time, I wasn't a Pentagon correspondent oh, okay. yet. Okay. I wasn't yet. yet. So, yet. so that came re- later. National reporter, though, right? You're <laughs> mm-hmm. you're you're on air. What was that like? Like, did did it feel like? I don't know. Like like, clearly, um, it, it there's something you know in the back of your mind where you're like, all right, you know, you're you're not totally settled in in many mm. many ways of that word. Like that that must have been pretty difficult. The difficult part was when I actually lived in my car. That was the difficult part for me because you can't really sleep like that. You know, you have people walking past the car. Now you're wondering, are they going to break into the car? Are they going to mug me? Like every sound you hear, you're waking up and you're like, what's happening? You know, and you can't really get really good sleep with that. And you're always scared. I had my dog with me. So he would wake up and bark, you know, if he saw someone. And it, that was the scary part for me. Um, so, so Therese, the, the part I'm curious about, and it's a topic that I, uh, have experienced myself is the feeling of, uh, questioning whether I am, I belong, right? So, so hmm. some people call it the imposter syndrome. So here you are, you're, you're a national reporter. You're in the process of trying to establish your career. You also are aware as your colleagues are not, that you are not settled, that you're living out of a car. Did you feel like you're an imposter? Did you feel like you belonged or or did you have any doubts about whether this was in fact a place that you had every right to be in? If anything, I felt like I belonged more mm-hmm. than the others because in my mind, I'm overcoming a lot of stuff while still doing my job and doing it good and not complaining despite the circumstances and still treating everyone how they want to be treated and trying to focus on all the positives. To me, I was more than qualified to be there because I was able to overcome all those things. And most, most, I actually, they will maybe find out once they see this interview, didn't even know that I was homeless. So if anything, that encouraged me more and just made me feel more proud of myself. The fact that I was able to do all those things with all those circumstances stacked up against me, to be honest. Do you feel people would have treated you differently had they known that you were Absolutely. living in your car? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Absolutely. Wow. And it wouldn't have been in a good way either. Mm-hmm. As Confucius once said, um, you go girl. That's, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Quote. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's a blessing, but, and, it, and it's a blessing in a sense that now I've been able to share my story and shed light on, it's a huge issue for veteran women. And especially ones with children. Can you imagine being homeless, but having a child with you as well? And so the blessing that came out of that was not only was I able to overcome it, but now I can shed a light on a group of people that most don't even know exist. I know a lot of women who had the same situation 
They lived out of their car. They went to work, did their job, came back and was sleeping in their car that night. I know a lot of women. So a lot of people don't realize how often or how prevalent it is. And so I was able to turn that into a platform to shed a light and actually start helping people who were going through that. So I, one thing you will learn about me, I've had a lot of horrible, horrible things happen to me, but I always try to focus on the positive. I try to learn what lessons there are to be learned from it. And I also try to turn it around to help other people, because if I can help somebody not go through what I went through, then maybe it was all worth it. Yeah, I I think, uh, Therese, I, I, you know, we, we've talked a little bit offline and, and I, I, connected you with, uh, you know, with someone in my life that I think you'd have a lot in common with, uh, because I, I do believe, and I, as person has actually also suffered a sexual abuse as a child and has been through difficult things. Uh, you know, I, I do think that being able to talk about these things and making them less taboo and making people feel less shame, uh, is both something that gives you peace and relief and obviously empowers others. And, uh, let, let's actually use that as a, as an opportunity to talk about your book, so uh, the book, No Longer Silent, which you uh, published this year, if you want to hold it up for the camera, that would be great. Wonderful. Uh, great cover photo. Uh, <laughs> it's a deeply personal memoir. You, you wrote about uh, very, very difficult truths from your childhood, as well as your time in the Air Force. Um, I'd love for you to share with our audience uh, that part of your story. And, uh, and what prompted you to decide, you know what, I'm going to write a book. So I'll give you snippets because I don't want to give everything because I want people to definitely check out the book for sure. So check out the book. It's a great book. Very interesting and very quick read. It did not take me very long to read. I read over the over uh, a few hours on a week. That's what most I, people I enjoyed told it so me. much. Yeah, I enjoyed it so much. I put it down. I basically started reading it. I intended to read about an hour. I ended up reading for about two and a half and I finished the book. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's it's I think that's what compelled me to write the book. One, I have such a unique background that I don't think people understand. They only see the end result, but they don't see how I got there. And to be honest, I feel that my trauma is what led me to where I am. What sparked the desire to want to write the book? Initially, the pandemic hit and I wanted to start exploring how my childhood traumas were impacting me currently, because whether people like to believe it or not or don't realize it, what happens to you as a kid, especially when it comes to trauma, will impact you as an adult whether you know it or not. So I wanted to explore that. So I've been going to counseling since I want to say 2012, 2013. I'm a firm believer in it. I think everyone should go, whether they think they should or not, I think they should. Um, And so I was speaking to my counselor and I said, I want to start deep diving into this because the trauma that happened to me as a kid was so horrifying and horrific that doctors say there's like a, I don't know what the definition is, um, of it, but basically there's a switch in my head that switched. So literally I have no emotions towards it. I have no emotional connection. I can talk about it as if I'm watching a movie and I'm telling you about a script of a movie. And they said that my brain did that to protect me from going crazy, basically because of the stuff I had experienced. So there was always a fear to ever even explore what had happened to me because I was scared that that was going to make me snap basically. My counselor said, no, I think we can go about talking about it. You'll be fine and and we can heal from it. And so we started exploring it and I started journaling during that process. And as we went along, I said, you know, I'm just going to journal about it and this will be healing. And then, you know, as a news reporter, I'm also still covering things that are going on in the world. And when I saw what happened to the Fort Hood soldier, Vanessa Gann, that's when it hit me. No. This is ha- this has to be a book. I'm calling it no longer silent because this has to stop. This is unacceptable that one, our service members are being sexually harassed. It was being swept under the rug. They get retaliated. They get hazed. And then the only time the national news wants to cover it, especially if it's a woman of color, is if she dies. So in that process, I said, you know, let me write this book. Because I want to spread the word about this and show that we are human beings. We are real people with feelings. You know, you see a service member, you think of a secret agent, you think hardcore. And, you know, we have to put on this persona that I'm tough and I don't cry. And and a lot of times we feel that way because we have to keep up with the men and and not show weakness. But we are, at the end of the day, human. And these things do happen. And to not do for the military to sweep it under the rug or you know, pretend it doesn't happen. We signed away our lives to 
serve our country, to protect other people in this nation. Why should I fear that my coworker may rape me and you may let them get away with it? I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for my own battle buddy who's supposed to protect me in battle and give, give his life for mine and vice versa if it comes to it, to be concerned. I was trained to wear a necklace with a knife on it. And they told me during pre-deployment training, wear it in the shower and whenever you shower, you face outward because your own coworkers will attack you. In a war zone, I gotta worry about my coworkers trying to rape and attack me and the enemy? What is that? Mm. And that was a part of the training. So I said, you know what? Mm -mm. Enough's enough. I've had it. I'm not being silent about this because the longer you're silent about these things, the people that are doing these things will continue to do it. And then I feel like I'm being complicit. So I wrote the book and, you know, so far, a lot of people have gravitated to it because it's not just for sexual assault survivors. It's for people who have kids. It's for you know, aunts and uncles and people with cousins, you know, um, it talks about, you know, dealing with child rape and abuse, gun violence against children, domestic violence against children. It talks about um, spousal abuse. And then it also talks about being assaulted in the military. And it goes into my whole background of how I got, how those, what my life's journey led me to those situations and how I was able to survive them and turn them around again to try to help other people, which I'm a firm believer, firm believer that the only reason why God allowed all that stuff to happen to me is because he knew I was strong enough to survive it. And he knew I would use that to help other people. This well, good for you for making that making that conclusion. I mean, I think that uh, ultimately we we have two options. It's something we've talked about in this podcast. Something I believe in firmly. We have we have the opportunity to tell our story, and we can tell our story as if we are a victim, or we can tell the story as if we are the hero of the story. And that our uh, purpose is to view whatever it is that happened in our lives as not happening uh, us, but happening for us. And it sounds like you very much have that mindset. I do. It's happening for us. What can I learn from this? And what can I do to hopefully spare others from having to ever experience or go through this? Yeah, I, and, I, and, and honestly, it's been a blessing. I, I totally love the fact that you are the anti-victim, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you're not, a lot of people have gone through terrible things. Absolutely. But not many people are able to turn it around and use it as a driving force for the positive, which yes. is extremely commendable. And um, I think it's amazing. Well, that's one. I'm glad you made that point because that's one of the things in my book that it focuses on. Everybody can do it. Yeah. Well, they we just agree. don't know how. And so it's, I want to encourage others that this is how you can do it. You can do this too. You can turn your pain around, take control of it, take your power back. And if you so choose to do so, you can help others. And this is how you can do it. Yeah. And so you wrote, you, so writing a book, first of all, is a daunting venture, obviously. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I can tell by your eyes. Bug it out. It's, it's a daunting PJ venture. PJ knows a thing or two about I it. He know, is married to uh, an international best-selling author. So. Yes, yes. So I, I, know, I know how intense that process can be. Um, mm -hmm. I can never do it because I can't even spell. But what did you... That's what spell checks for. Well, that's true. That's true. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. My, my whole future is laid out in front of me. Um, there you go. What did you discover about yourself, you know, during this process of writing this book? You know, when people ask me, why did you become a journalist back in the day? I said, oh, it's because I love helping people. And that's legitimately what I thought. But once I started writing my book and deep diving into my childhood stuff, I realized that, yes, I do like helping people, but why? Not just because of what happened to me. What I discovered was the issue was my inner child, especially when I was going through the traumatic incidents as a child, I told people what was happening to me and they ignored me. They didn't believe me. Even the man who was raping me at five, six, seven years old said, go on, tell whoever you want. No one's going to believe you. And guess what? No one did. So for me, it was actually a desire to be acknowledged. It was actually a desire to be seen. It was a desire to look. I'm a reporter. I have three 
sources for my stories. There's no way you can question whether I'm lying about this or not because I got sources. I come with receipts. And I didn't realize it. It was I wanted people to believe me and believe that when I say something, I'm telling the truth. How deep is that? You know, it's like, wow. And so through that writing process, I learned so much about myself that I just did not, I did not know. Here it is, you know, things that I would do where I, oh, I just like being nice. And it was like, but no, there's another side to why I'm driven to do it. It's not that I just like to do it. I feel an insatiable desire to do it. There's a difference. almost an unhealthy desire. And and a lot of things I did, you know, I actually ended up becoming a workaholic and I enjoyed the thrill of always working, always proving that I'm good at this, always proving I'm good at that. And that's why I jumped from so many different things to another, because I would get an idea. I want to do this and I would master it instantly, be like, okay, I'm bored. Next thing. And then move on to the next thing. Right. And, but it was a desire to prove to people why you should love me why you should accept what I'm saying, why you should believe me. And so I learned a lot. And I hope a lot of other people, even if they're just journaling, they'll do that as well, because they will learn a lot about themselves just in writing down their feelings. There are a couple of things you had said some a little bit earlier in the interview that really resonated with me. Uh, As someone that survived uh, childhood sexual assault, I uh, did not speak of it until I was in my 20s. I only did at that time because uh, the person that had sexually assaulted me, frankly, raped me. Uh, was a cousin, and I, uh, you know, I, I discovered that he was being accused of doing it to his children, and I knew it was true. Mm. Uh, and I felt I needed to uh, speak up, and I did, and he did end up going to jail, though he or prison, uh, although he did not serve nearly as long a time, and never apologized to me, and never acknowledged uh, the truth. Send me but his address. Interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll visit. Him. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's a long, it's a long, a very interesting story. Um, but but maybe more to the point, there are a couple of things he said that that resonated with me. One was that for the longest time I could tell the story, but I was distant from the story. I, I, I didn't, you know, I would tell you what happened. I recalled what happened, uh, but probably to save myself, my my brain didn't allow it to uh, to be more story. So that really resonates with me. The second thing is what you just said, which is that um, when you are treated like you are garbage, which is what you are experiencing when someone uh, uses you for their sexual gratification. You're an object. Um yeah, and you're 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 an object, not even an object. You're nothing. You're yeah. you're you're absolutely nothing. Um, it really damages your uh, self worth, and it creates um, a situation. And I'm not a therapist, so I'm this is my layman's view of it. But it creates a situation where you struggle to believe you're worthwhile, and you struggle to believe you're worthy of being loved, even if you feel that you're very a great person and you're doing great things. And people tell you that you are somewhere deep, deep inside, there is that issue. And and I dealt with that for many, many years. Not even, frankly, I wasn't even completely cognizant of the fact that what I was really struggling with was that I wasn't sure that I was worthy of being loved. Um, and I'm glad you're talking about that. I think that that's a, that's a really, really important thing to, to recognize. People, when people think about the victims of sexual abuse and going through that process uh, and needing to recover from that, they they might think that this is a psychic injury, and you need to uh, to 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 overcome the trauma of what you experienced. That is indeed part of that, but a huge part of that is believing, uh, essentially changing story from a story where you were not someone that was worthy at all, and you are someone that's very worthy, and the person that that uh, chose to again use you, uh, absolutely no way, shape, or form speaks to your worth as an individual and whether you're. Uh, worthy of being loved, and that's 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 a that's a journey, and it takes a minute, and frankly, it takes years, uh, especially if you're traumaed and 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 not confronting it. And I think for, for a lot of people that have gone through these types of experiences, the hardest part, uh, you know, beyond accepting that this happened to you, and um, and that it is more than a story that you're telling at a distance, uh, is to recognize, um, you know, that the impact it has had on you is usually far, far greater and far more uh, far reaching than maybe you might've imagined. I, for the longest time thought I wasn't as impacted by it, but in fact I was. And that's what I had to discover. And, and, you know, and I know you asked earlier to to give a little snippet um, from my book and, and, you know, I would like to share that, you know, as a, as a young five, six year old girl and moving with my mother at the time and I was um, introduced to her boyfriend and 
I now know he was grooming me, but at the time I didn't realize that's what was going on. Um, you know, it's so important for a lot of parents to be very careful, first of all, who they allow around their children, including family. Um, but in this situation, you know, I, before that, I had been living with my grandmother and my father. I kind of went back and forth between all of all three. And so, you know, they thought they were leaving me in the hands of a, you know, normal adult that doesn't do weird things to children. Right. Um, and so it started off with a whole grooming and they take the truth and twist it. So one of the things he would do is he would tell me, your family doesn't love you. See, they never call you and they never talk to you. And only I love you. And now you're growing up with this demented view of what love is because you really don't know what it is. Because for these two years, you've been told that this is what love is and it isn't. So he would say, only I love you. I only do these things. And it went from small little things to graphic. And I just remember it got so bad. You know, I remember I was like um, handcuffed to the bed and he had um, stopped feeding me because he got mad that I wouldn't do what he said. And I remember just laying there looking up at the ceiling and I remember saying, God, please take me to be with the angels. Mm. I don't want to be here anymore. This is too painful. And I just remember thinking every day, I just rather be with God and the angels than be here being tortured every day. Thank God that you are here with us. I'm so sorry I went yeah. through that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But thank Jesus. goodness that you persevered. And, you know, uh, that it is hard to say that something like that is something that happened for you. It is truly, truly hard to say. I generally believe in that. But I believe in all probability that that didn't happen for you. That happened to you and you had the strength and you have the strength uh, to turn that into something that is not uh, a drag on you and hopefully uh, an opportunity to uplift others. I'm, I commend you on on choosing a, the, to, to be courageous and talk about it because it's, uh, it's, it's certainly harrowing to even hear about. Yeah. yeah. You know. And it's, but, but it, I think it's important. You have to put a face to these things because if you don't, anybody can just kind of nonchalantly say, Oh, statistically this many kids get molested by their you know, close family members. But when you put a face to it, you show that child, hold on, give me a second. You show that child. And we have so many people who are like, protect the children. You show this. Mm -hmm. Yep. That was a little girl who all she wanted to do was make bracelets and chase butterflies and make mud pies outside and, and play with bugs. Cause I was a tomboy, <laughs> you know, and play with teenage mutant Ninja turtles. Yep. And I feel like a certain extent, my childhood was taken away, but that's okay. I'm, you know, I think I'm now as an adult letting that inner child come out more often. And so I'm getting that opportunity, but it's. Well, let, let's talk about that yeah. inner child and I'm going to pivot it. It's kind of hard to pivot from this topic to another topic, but, but well, can, we'll let me, use let me that just, segue. And, and yeah, I'll, go ahead, PJ. I'll give, sure. I'll give the segue for a second, but uh, I just wanted to say it's it is um, it is terrible and it is shocking how prevalent this issue is. Um, and I, <laughs> I've actually only shared this with my wife, but I also went through something. Um, with a trusted person when I was a child, it was my doctor. And wow. I used to hate going to, I, I never really understood why, but uh, only recently, I mean, I'm 55, right? So I was dealing with, I dealt with this my whole life. And then like within the last few years, I realized, oh, this is, um, this is terrible, <laughs> right? What, what happened was not the norm because then when I'm sending my son to the doctor, I'm like, hold on. He shouldn't be in there alone with him. You know, like there's, there was real fear in me and it took me a long time to try to process that out. So I'm just saying all that to say it is, this isn't a, uh, an issue that, that should be swept under the rug. This is something that happens to way more people. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter about the background. I'll tell you from, you're from Israel. I'm from Florida and you know, uh, Therese, you, you grew up, I don't know where you grew up, but you grew up somewhere all over, <laughs> all over. Right. And, and unfortunately it rears its head and it needs to be addressed in, in so many ways. So I am very thankful for you and Tal to, to be able to talk about it and to be able to say, Hey, not only is this supremely shitty, 
Mm-hmm. And not only can you survive from it, but the fact that you're you're going ahead and you're doing something uh, proactive about it, and you're and you're and you're sharing your story, and you're no longer silent, and you're mm-hmm. you're really out there and, and doing that. I I can't clap loudly enough uh, for that. So I just wanted to I'm, I just wanted to say that and, and segue well, away, know, my friend. F- oh. First and foremost, it takes a, a certain level of vulnerability to even be able to speak about that. And I know, especially for men, that is very difficult. So first and foremost, for both of you, thank you for sharing your stories because again, we have to get people to start speaking about speaking up about the injustices that they endured. And to both of you, I'm so sorry you had to experience that from a doctor, someone who you're supposed to be able to trust, and then from a family member. Like, these are the things that I wanted to make sure I pointed out and focused on. And also, too, surprisingly, a lot of people that get my book, I thought more women were going to buy my book than anything, but it's actually been more men, which that shows you that it's happening a lot more than people like to admit to young boys and men. And they're trying to navigate this world with living with the shame of thinking they did something wrong and they deserve that. I can't imagine as a man having that on you and trying to be the supporter, the, the, uh, you know, the, um, the head of the household while also trying to deal with those feelings. And so I commend you both for one, sharing that and two, doing your parts right now by bringing awareness to this, because this is where the healing starts. We start speaking about it. So thank you for trusting me and opening up about that. And I, and I think it's such a beautiful thing because that's the first step. And I think everyone needs to take that first step thank and you. that will be how they heal. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, uh, PJ, I thank you for sharing that with us and with, with the audience. Uh, Pretty, pretty profound. I agree with you, actually, Therese. I think it is a lot more prevalent with uh, boys and men than you would think. I've, I uh, happen to know of uh, several other people in my immediate orbit that have experienced it as well. Um, and um, you know, I'll just leave it there. I, there was a very interesting movie that I saw recently. We, we had Larry Kazanoff, the famed uh, Hollywood producer of uh, movies like Platoon and uh, Dirty Dancing and mm. Die Hard, and, and we had a conversation about the kind of movies they're making nowadays. And I mentioned that I've, I've recently found. Some movies that really profoundly touched me. Unfortunately, he put me on the spot and asked me for names. I couldn't think of one. But one that did, and it's actually relevant uh, relevant to uh, this topic, is uh, the movie Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen that, look that look uh, look for that movie. It's a movie about uh, sexual child sexual trafficking, and it's a true story uh, of an incredible American here by the name of Tim Ballard, a uh, uh, former uh, federal uh, agent. Uh, who dedicated his life to saving uh, as many children as possible. So um, it, it's a hard, like I said, it's it's going to be a hard segue. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and do it. Our audience will forgive me. Uh, but you you mentioned that, uh, you know, part of the process of uh, reinventing yourself or moving on is is to access some of that childhood exuberance, ch- childlike exuberance that maybe you didn't quite get to experience. And I wonder uh, how much of that may have led you to pursue uh, the pageant uh, and becoming uh, Miss International World, which is amazing. Uh, this just happened. Not like, you know, we're not talking years and years ago. This was last year. Uh, what prompted you to compete? Um, and how do you balance the demands of being Miss International World, world with uh, both your personal and professional commitments? Well, so funny story through the process of me writing this book and discovering myself. I remember last year in January, um, I, I always had a, a trajectory. This I have to do A, B, C, and D to get to this, you know, this goal. And so in January of last year, I said, you know what? From now on, I'm just going to say yes to stuff, stuff that I never thought I would say yes to. I'm going to say yes to stuff because I just need to explore different ways to do. There's multiple ways to get to your end goal. And I can't just have my mindset that this is the only way to do it. So um, prior to that, I'd already taken an interest in pageants because the one particular one I was looking into, their focus was homeless veteran women. So that's kind of how I got into it. In January, as the person who's going to say yes to everything, I think after that pageant, I said, I'm never doing pageants ever again. I'm never doing it again. No. <laughs> and uh, so January came along and I had you know people inviting me to do different things. And so I said, OK, sure, I'll try that out. I, I got invited to do a runway show. I'd never done a runway show before. And during that time, I had started doing a little bit of modeling before that. 
uh, just for fun. It wasn't for any company specifically. And so I did this runway show. And as a result, it was like, I went from never doing a runway show first time ever to the next one I did was in a bikini, which I, that takes a lot of confidence to literally go in front of a crowd of people walking a runway in a bikini, mind you, that being your only second time. And you're with tons of people who've been doing this for years. That's a lot. And all the people there were like, what, that was your second time? Like, we thought you had been doing this for a while. So I was like, thank you, guys. I really appreciate that because I thought I look like, you know, not what you're describing, <laughs> you know, and I'm being hard on myself in that instance. And so it led from runway shows to I'm doing videos of me cycling uh, on my Bowflex Velocore. And I'm goofy at heart. I'm a goofy person. So I started letting that come out more. And so I'm like, you know what? I love Family Guy. I'm gonna make a video with Family Guy on the screen of the bike and I'm gonna mimic it and be Lois. And so I had her voice going and I was mimicking her and I kid you not, that night I posted it and the next day I woke up with a message from Bowflex saying, hey, can you do some commercials for us? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Um, and so it just literally one thing led to another, to another. And then I was being interviewed by Muscle and Fitness. I've been interviewed by them twice. Uh, after that, um, I was on a, I was on one magazine cover, which I, you probably can't see it, but it's up here on my wall. Then I ended up being in three other magazines. So that was four total. Um, and it just, and it was just because I just started saying yes to stuff that I normally never would have said yes to. I didn't picture myself ever being a model. That was like the last thing I ever pictured myself doing or walking the runway and doing those things. And I'm glad I did it. I, it was a great experience. And so that was that inner child coming out. I'm not going to say no to it. Let's just explore it. And if I don't like it, I won't do it again. But at least I can say I did it. And look where it's led. I mean, I was just at the White House about a week ago talking to them about my book. Hmm. Six months ago, I went from saying yes to a runway show to I'm at the White House speaking to White House officials about my book. Whoa, you know, and it was all because I decided I'm no longer going to dedicate my life making everyone else rich. I'm not going to spend working nine to five to make someone else rich. I'm going to take all that time and pour it into myself. And that's why I started focusing on my mental health, my physical health, what I want to do, what I needed to be happy. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what we all are looking for. What makes me happy? And I think a lot of people think they know what makes them happy or they may know they just don't do it. But I think a lot of people know what it is and they, they refuse to do it because of fear or other things. I swam with sharks. I literally went to the Maldives. Off of, I said, you know, I've always wanted to go. Yeah, let me book a ticket in two weeks. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the Maldives. I, I, I want to talk about your your friend, the Hermit Rabbit, but let's <laughs> let, let's we, we'll get to last. I promise. Okay, that's, that's okay. On our agenda. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's talk business a little bit. Okay. DJ, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, just so you know, um, you never pictured yourself on uh, being a model. I never have either. Um, so <laughs> let's let's hear. You about... should try it. Say yes. Just say yes to it. <laughs> I told you before, model. Um, so tell tell us more about your 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 business, the Live Edge Artistry. You create these Live Edge wood tables, um, and of course, you're you're uh, doing that from a foundation of sustainability and ethical sourcing, which is awesome. Um, so how did you discover that you were able to do this? Like, how did you get into it? And then like, what is one of your most favorite or proudest creations? So I'm laughing because the way I got into it, it started off bad. Like all these stories always start off bad, but I turned it into a good reason. So basically <laughs> I had moved to Florida before I moved to Florida, as you had mentioned earlier, I worked for Fox News Channel. And during that time I worked for them, they had given me a vehicle and they, prov they provided all the money I needed for rent and everything else. So I had a brand new car. But when I moved to Florida, I was no longer with them. So guess what? They took the vehicle back and I no longer had that money. So when I moved um, to Florida, I had no furniture. I had no car. And so I get there and I'm in an empty apartment. I'm like, wow, this is great. Okay. Um, what can I do? Let me go research some 
furniture companies that can go get furniture. And I started researching places. I'm like, man, this stuff is crap. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm being frank. It was garbage. Right. And so I, just out of the blue, I said, huh, well, let me see, how can I make this? And I just started researching it. And then I'm like, oh, that's easy. Okay, cool. Nah. The first table I ever made was a epoxy resin live edge table that could seat 10 people. And I made it in my garage that I turned into a wood shop. And that was the first big project I'd ever made. And people do not believe me to this day that I did that table by myself, which is actually downstairs in my um, garage right now. But uh, I just went and built a table. Yeah, no, I did. I literally just researched it and it was like, okay, let me try this out. And I started making little things like, so for instance, like this is a serving tray made, in, made out of acacia wood. So I had it milled and dried it. So I have a lot of wood that was drying in my backyard for like three years. And then, um, you know, I would take them, dry them out, flatten them, take epoxy resin, put them in a little encasing a little like mold, I guess, so to speak. And then I would make little designs and different things like that. But I was making these little things and people were like, wow, that's really cool. You didn't make that. I'm like, no, I really did. And so people liked my stuff so much that they started asking to buy my stuff. And I'm like, hey, I'm a hustler. I ain't gonna pass up on making some money. Sure, you wanna buy it? How much you wanna pay for it? And so people started buying my stuff. I had a woman, bless her heart. She, uh, she came to me and said, I saw your work online. And I actually just had it displayed in my house. So because I was a reporter, I would do different photos and stuff so people could see what was in my house. And so people were seeing the furniture I was building. So I saw your photos and I would love for you to make a table for me. I've been collecting seashells since I was a kid. I think she was in her 50s. She said, I've been collecting seashells since I was a kid and I want to make a piece that I can pass to my, my kids and their kids. I said, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. I took three months making this table for her. It ended up being, I'm not going to say how much it cost, but it was, it was a nice penny. She paid a pretty penny for it. And so I made that in a bench for her. This was now my second table that I'd ever made. And to this day, I think she just messaged me like two months ago and was like, I love this table. It still looks like brand new, like you just made it. And for me, that was just so beautiful because I was able to incorporate all the shells since she was a kid in the table oh. and it looked like a beach. So her table was acacia wood and it looked like a big, a big beach with shells and everything in it. And she loved mermaids. She was huge. She's like, can you sneak a mermaid in there? And I'm like, I don't think you should do that. And she's like, no, I really want a mermaid. So I said, okay, I got you. So I was able to sneak a mermaid in the design of the sand. And she, and then I said, every time she looks at it now, she sees that mermaid. It's not blatant like a mermaid, but you could see it. And so I just was so inspired by doing that. And it was a great outlet for me. It was a great de-stressor for me. I was making some good money and I'm artistic. Like I, I competed in art competitions since I was a kid to the point where I got a full ride scholarship to a college in Tennessee for art. So for me, I just saw it as I'm doing artwork and they're like, no, you're a carpenter. That's well, actually that is artwork. And I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that's why I picked it up so easily because it was art. And that's what I felt like I was creating. And so, you know, like the tray I just showed you, I have um, different trays that look like beaches. Um, a lot of the materials I'll get. So for instance, um, my newest line of trays, I want to hopefully start soon. Um, it's the Maldives line and I have sand and shells from the Maldives I'm going to put in it. But ones I've done in the past, I use sand and shells from Miami. I also have some where I had butterflies, actual real butterflies in it from South, um, from Asia and South America. And so, you know, just being able to incorporate these different things, it's, it's living art. So you can display the tray on your counter, but when you have parties and stuff, you can break it out, put hors d'oeuvres on it and use it. And it's always a conversation piece. Everyone that's had a tray like mine, they're like, no one's ever seen anything like this. Everyone rants and raves about it. They want to know where they can get one. The only well, reason well, speaking why- Speaking of which, if if anybody in the audience would like to potentially hire you to build them some, some, uh, some live edge wood tables, how uh, would they be able to reach you to discuss that with you? So on that note, I am actually out of commission for a few more months. I'm hoping only three or four months because I have a back injury right now, so I can't sand. Mm -hmm. However, once I'm all healed up, if people are interested, um, they can go to my Instagram and send me a message. It's Live Edge Artistry. 
Uh, and you know, I've collaborated with people before they'll come to me and say, this is the idea I want. And I work with their budget as well. I say, what's your budget. Okay. You want, um, you know, if you want to, if you don't mind how much you're going to spend, well, we'll give you acacia wood. That's going to be the more expensive woods. You don't want to pay that much for the acacia. Okay, fine. I have cedar wood. So I work with people's budgets, but I also want to make sure people understand this isn't Ikea stuff. This is a custom-made piece that no one else will have. So I've had a lot of people come and say, oh, I'd love for you to make this magnificent table. And I'm like, okay, great. That'll be 20 grand. And they're like, oh, I can go get that from Ikea for, you know, $2,000 or $2,000. I said, okay, we'll go get it from Ikea for $2,000. <laughs> and when it falls apart next year, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, people have to understand it is art. I am an artist. It is art. And it's something that will literally last a lifetime. This isn't thin wood. The pieces of wood are like two or three inches thick. These things are heavy. I think the table I did for a woman um, in Connecticut, that table was almost 500 pounds. Goodness. Yeah, that's that's not an Ikea, you know, <laughs> particle board, you know, two pound table, you know. And so, you know, I just I wanted to make sure I emphasize that because I want people to know what the expectation is. Sure. No, <laughs> you, know? If, you know, if Ikea would like to sponsor our show, I just want to go on the record to say that I love Ikea, but I get your point. Um, listen, I, I want to pivot to the last topic, which is uh, just a lighthearted one. And you mentioned the Maldives and that's going to be your your next line of uh, live Edgewood tables would be about the Maldives, but you shared with us that, uh, you know, you went to the Maldives, you, you, you swam with sharks. You liked it so much. I believe you did it three times, but then, then you had a little surprise when you, uh, when you got home. <laughs> oh God, you're going to get me in trouble. Unexpected I'm out of the police. The, the oh, FBI going to be knocking on my door. You, you, um, transferring yeah. exotic animals. You're, you're so not supposed to do that, but, but tell that story. Cause, uh, okay. that's, that's, that's a little bit of an interesting story. And um, and, and do it in a couple of minutes because we got to wrap it up. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. All right. Let's yeah. make a long story even longer. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> so I'm at the Maldives and I researched it and I was talking to my butler because they give you butlers. And I say, Hey, can I take sand and shells back with me? And he said, Yes, of course. And so I had big old bags that I was <laughs> dumping sand in bags and shells and I stuffed them in my suitcases and I went through TSA and they're like, Wow, your bags are really heavy. What do you have in this? And I said, Sand and shells. And I smiled and they were like, Huh? And they opened it and they're like, oh my gosh, you weren't kidding. You really do have a lot of sand and shells in here. You must really like it. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, okay, great. So they push me through. I get, I fly home. It was like 18 hours. I get home. I'm too exhausted to bring my luggage up. So I'm not going to lie. I left my luggage <laughs> in my foyer for about a week. I just, I didn't feel like doing it. So <laughs> I finally decided, let me get my luggage out of my foyer and I was opening it up to start to take stuff out of it, to bring it up the stairs. And my dog walks over and he's sniffing at something and I'm not paying him any attention. And he's sniffing at something. The next thing you know, I look over and he's got something in his mouth and I'm like, what is that? And it was like, the audience that's listening couldn't tell what you were doing, but you were shaking your hands up and down uh, yes. and, and looking petrified. So go on. Yeah. yeah. And so it was like this little thing with legs flailing everywhere and I'm like what is that you know and so I said put that down and so he put it down and I looked and it's running around in, in luggage and I'm like what is that so I had never seen one of those I was freaking out I took it to a local pet store and I said what is this thing and they said oh it's a hermit crab and I said okay can you take it <laughs> I don't want a hermit crab and they said well we could but he'll probably die so I'm like, oh, that's messed up. So I said, let me get him. <laughs> why a was he was he was was he attached to you? I mean, why would he die at the store? Yeah. No, because they're they're territorial. So if they put uh, him in a cage with other ones, they'll know he's uh, new and they'll try to kill him. Uh -huh. So I said, well, I didn't kidnap him from a and fly him all across the world in a Ziploc bag and then leave him in the suitcase for seven days just to take him to a pet store so he can get killed. So I ended up getting a 60 gallon tank and built him an obstacle course all throughout the tank. Like I said, this is going to be the most entertaining prison. This Did you name him? Did you give him a name? Yes. His name is Sunsiam. It's Sunsiam. And that was the name of the resort where I kidnapped him from. Gotcha. <laughs> so I still have him to this day. He's up, he's upstairs, you know, having a little crabby fit, but he's, he's sometimes he can be, you know, crabby, but it's cool. And so, yeah, so basically <laughs> I accidentally got you a pet kidnapped from a going, hermit crab out of the literally. Maldives. That's really the punchline of the story. <laughs> Fish and wildlife um, will be at your uh, door in 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> oh, you see right. me walking out of handcuffs. Breaking news. Former <laughs> Pentagon correspondent arrested for exotic animals in her home. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. We, we won't tell anyone if you won't. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking are, about. 
<laughs> Our guest today um, was the incredible and very, very interesting. And, and um, you know, let's put aside her adventures as a uh, thief of uh, animals. <laughs> Therese Garnier, uh, who's, who's lived quite a life and uh, has, as we shared, just again to take a moment to be serious, some really, really uh, personal um, and deeply touching um uh, aspects of her life with all of us aspects that uh, i and pj also shared about our lives um and uh i think it's inspiring and, and wonderful you're doing that and uh, uh if anyone in the audience is interested in hearing more pick up the book no longer silent it's available uh, on amazon i got it as well as in bookstores um and uh, we're going to invite you to write a little blog post maybe even an excerpt from your book for our very popular blog which you can find at www.bravingbusiness.com uh, we'd love to have you share some of your thoughts with the audience. We're really grateful uh, to have had a chance to talk to you today. Uh, continued success to you in, in in all your endeavors, professional and otherwise. Uh, and uh, you know what? Keep being brave. And that's maybe Thank the most you. important aspects of this podcast. How uh, amazing any one individual is. It's about how things are tough. And uh, at any given moment, uh, there are people out there who are s- struggling with something and you can have an impact on their lives by sharing your story, by being kind, by being present, by being aware. Uh, hopefully in this podcast, we are showing the way. Uh, you certainly are with the way uh, that you're carrying, uh, carrying out uh, your mission. And, uh, and I'm honored that uh, you chose to share some time with us today. So mm. thank you so much thank for you. doing that. Thank you no, for being an inspiration. You. No, thank you. And you guys are part of that journey. Look what you're doing. Oh. I mean, you are living examples of overcoming and now you're spreading the word to help others you're doing the same thing so i need y'all to take a little bit of credit as well hey let's share the credit yeah. <laughs> i love it yeah really that's awesome i love it thank you guys so much and that's a wrap folks like what you heard want to support the show please follow our page on linkedin and facebook visit us on youtube and please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services you can also see exclusive content subscribe for free to our weekly blog support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 